Thank you, Ben, for leading us this morning in worship. It's a, it's a pleasure to me. It's something I don't get to do often to get to be in the congregation and to worship uh, from there. So it's been nice this morning to have that opportunity and to get to do that. Uh, often when you're up here, it's hard to split uh, what's going on in your brain as far as the function of work and worshiping and leading. And so uh, it's always a little bit difficult. Um, and so I'm grateful to get the opportunity to uh, worship with you from the congregation. And I'm very thankful for our team. Do we live like a people who believe Jesus is, as Peter declares it in today's text, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? As we go through this morning, I want you to keep that question on the forefront of your mind and let that kind of inform everything else as we go through this morning. So I want to take a moment and, and I want us to uh, kind of place ourselves in the story of today's text, right? So you are in this group with the disciples and Jesus and you're kind of off in a remote location and um, you know there's just kind of some conversation going on and Jesus kind of looking off into the distance uh, he kind of lobs a question at the group in general, not very, not specifically at anyone, says, what are you hearing, guys? What, who? Who are the people out there saying the Son of Man is? Who, who are people saying that I am? And you're standing here in this group and you hear a question from your left or an answer from your left or from the right or from behind you, maybe someone in front of you that you don't quite hear what they've said, but you hear people throwing out answers. Jesus kind of shifts his gaze, his gaze, gaze from out in the distance and looks at the group and very directly asks the follow-up question. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus was seemingly somewhat unsatisfied with the first answer. And so he asks the more direct question of the people that know him best. I had the opportunity to lead camp, uh, worship at a camp in the summer of 2019. Seems like a long time ago right now. And... Um, Many of the musicians that lead here on Sunday mornings came with me to do this camp, and we had a lot of fun, and, and it was a good time. And uh, right before we went out for the first session, the camp director looks at me and he says, Hey, man, uh, what's y'all's name? Kind of shrugged. I was like, We don't really have a name. We're just like the team from this church, so, you know, we, we just do that. You know, we don't have a name. He goes, Okay. I said, Just make something up, you know, just be creative, make something up. Boy, I would live to regret that statement. Um, because throughout the rest of that camp, they proceeded to uh, come up with new names for us every day. So uh, the camp director went out, and he introduced us as something I don't remember, and he said, now if you want to rename these guys because they don't have a name, come tell me, and I'll take, take the best name every day, and that's who they'll be that day, right? And so it was kind of this running joke. It was funny, um, but I did, I did regret just not you know, saying something, saying, hey, this is who we are, or this is how you should uh, introduce us, or this is the name that you should give us. Then a week ago, I was uh, doing some residential hours for a class that I'm in through my master's program at Asbury Seminary, and um, we, we do a lot of stuff online, and then we meet for a weekend intensive, so we're together for three days of class, and so this was last week I was at this class. And at the beginning of the class time, we were paired up into groups or into, into pairs. We were put into sets of two. And the purpose of this was that we were to interview one another, right? So I had to interview this person. They had to interview me. And then we had to introduce the person that we interviewed to the class. And so we're going through this process. And, and my friend Zach, who's a youth director in this area, was the person I was paired up with. And 
Uh, he's asking me questions about what I do, how old I am, where I grew up, my family, all of the, all the things that kind of get at the most basic point of who I am, right? The, boil, the boiled down summary of who I am as a person. So we, we do the process, we do the interview, and, and he's, so now he's introducing me to the class. And he's getting it all right. You know, Zoggy, he was born in Plainview, he lives in Lubbock, he works first Lubbock, his kids are, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then he gets to the end of his introduction, and he throws this, uh, this fact about myself out there that I wasn't aware of. It wasn't part of our interview, right? He says, and Augie has a band named Augie and the Octonauts. And I looked at him, really confused, and he looks back at me, just beaming with pride because he had this little-known fact about who I was, that I was a part of this band called Augie and the Octonauts. You see, my friend, youth director, had been at camp for one night. Just one night is all it took that summer. And that's how we were introduced that evening. And so he took it and he ran with it. He may not have realized that it was just a running joke, or maybe he did and he figured it needed to keep running. But either way, he used it. But this fact, you see, wasn't, wasn't really a fact. It wasn't really true. It wasn't really a part of who I was, maybe for about 12 hours, but that's about it. The purpose of the assignment was for the interviewer, right, to gather information about the interviewee and to answer that most basic question, who am I? And like Peter, Zach had gotten so much right. My friend Zach got so much right before he got it just absolutely wrong. So wrong. So I ask you again, what's your answer to Jesus' question today? But who do you say that I am? Not in that story we submerged ourselves earlier, but here and now, today, this morning. What's your answer to that question? Who do you say that Jesus is? We read in today's text that Peter, Jesus tells Peter, you're setting your mind on things of man, not on divine things. And when we set our minds on things of man, we tend to simplify and demean Jesus' identity, how he functions in our world and the authority that he has over our lives. As an effect of that, oftentimes we can boil people down, we can often boil Jesus down to something that he's really not. Sometimes when we, when we demean Jesus' identity and authority in our lives, he becomes kind of like a genie, right? When we need something, we go, Say, hey, Jeannie, this is the thing I need. Or an insurance policy. We know that when everything else goes wrong, we have Jesus to back us up. An SOS signal, right? Or an emergency responder. We see Jesus, the name of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus in our lives as a triage tent. Sometimes when we allow our minds to be set on human things, we can use and invoke the name of Jesus for worldly gain, financial gain, gain in status, being associated with the right crowd or being associated with the right agenda or political gain. Or sometimes Jesus' name can be a name that we avoid for many of the same reasons. And like Peter, who denies even being associated to Jesus or knowing Jesus in Matthew 26, at times, when we're up against life circumstances where there are decisions to be made and sin looms large, 
Our mind gets set on human things rather than divine things. And the answer to that question, who do you say that I am, often determines the outcome. When we set our, thing, our mind on things of man, the question that Jesus is asking us today can get perverted. And the human part of us, <laughs> the human part of us wants to use Jesus' identity for our own good, for our own agenda. Thomas Akempis, an early church theologian and priest from the 14th century, has to say this about our capacity to be obedient and subject to God's authority and to one another's authority. He says, Many live in obedience more out of necessity than for love. And because of this, they suffer and easily complain. Their situation will not get any easier unless they're able to submit themselves wholeheartedly for love of God. Their situation will not get easier unless they're able to submit themselves wholeheartedly for the love of God. With all that we know, with all that we've seen, with all that we've experienced of this Jesus, do we live like a people who believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And is my answer, is your answer to that question coming from a place of obedience out of necessity? <laughs> or is it coming from a place of obedience out of love for God? Peter's declaration of Jesus' identity in today's text had been a long time coming, right? Peter had been with Jesus. The disciples had been, been with Jesus for some time. They had a pretty good idea of who he was. They'd been with him for the better part of three years, and they'd seen him perform miracle after healing after miracle after healing. They heard his teachings, teachings that stumped rabbis and scribes, teachings and wisdom that stumped the, the trick questions that the scribes would throw at Jesus, like in Matthew 22. And they'd been witness to many signs. Just in Matthew, we see uh, Simon Peter's call story in Matthew 4 that Todd talked about last week. Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Matthew 14. Jesus and Peter walking on water in Matthew 14, which was last week's text. Jesus feeding the 4,000 in Matthew 15, just to name a few of these many signs. And still, after all of these things that they had seen and heard, I imagine when Jesus asked that question, when he turned his gaze out from the, the distance and looked at the group with intent and said, who do you say that I am? I imagine there was this long pause Right, One of those moments that maybe lasts five, ten seconds, but it really feels like five or ten minutes. And so we put ourselves back in that story this morning, and we imagine standing in that group, Jesus asked that question, and you imagine the silence that looms over it. And you kind of start looking around, and you see some disciples uh, diverting their gaze from Jesus and looking off into that same distance he was looking into. Maybe looking into the ground and the dirt at their sandals, hoping to find an answer there. Or looking at one another, <laughs> seeing hey, who's going to be the brave soul to speak up. But I have to say, we can't be too hard on these guys, right? We've all experienced that. And I have to, I have to say, I hadn't thought about you know, being on the other side of this coin before, but I heard Bailey preaching at the 9 o'clock service this morning, and he said, man, don't you just love being that guy that jumps up and just answers the question right away, even if you're going to get it wrong? And I thought to myself, no, absolutely not. That is not who I am. But it's good to know that that's who he is, right? 
But we've all had that experience where uh, you, you know a question's coming and, and you might know the answer, but you might not. And so there's a little bit of anxiety that comes with that. And, and, and you're not really sure if you want to blurt it out unless you're Bailey, and that's okay. But it takes a brave soul, and maybe this is where Bailey's got us. It takes a brave soul with equal parts certainty, equal parts conviction, and equal parts recklessness to speak up in that moment. I had a music theory teacher uh, when I was going to tech, and uh, the, the way that she would teach a concept was that she would introduce the concept to the class, and then uh, we would work through this, this score, you know, find, finding that, that thing or that whatever it was that we were trying to understand in the score. And so uh, you knew when you went to class that day that you were going to answer four or five questions about something you really didn't know much about yet because you were still learning, and she would just go front to back down each row, Right? And I remember there were times when, I, okay, there's six people in front of me, so this, that's probably going to be what I need to fear. And I'd start working on that, and I'd just focus on that because there's that. It's not so much out of fear of, of getting it wrong more than it's fear of getting it not quite right. Fear of getting it not quite right. In the eight verses before today's text in Matthew, we see just how hard it can be to get it just right. Jesus had fed the 4,000 in Matthew 14. And then in Matthew 15, the Pharisees and Sadducees come and they ask Jesus to show us a sign from heaven. <laughs> As if the feeding of the 4,000 that he had just done wasn't quite enough of a sign from heaven. Immediately after Jesus deals with and dispenses with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we read this in 16 verses 5 and 7. When the disciples reached the other side, getting to where Jesus was, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And to us, it's obvious that Jesus here is referring to his encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But then we read, they, the disciples, said to one another, it's because we didn't bring any bread. It's almost funny how poorly they missed the mark. They didn't just get it wrong. They got it terrifically wrong. Then Jesus goes on, if that wasn't bad enough, to tell them exactly how wrong they were. And he says this in the following verses. You of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? <laughs> Do you still not perceive? Do you still not remember? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? That was like last week, guys. And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? That was like two days ago. And how many baskets you gathered there? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. How could you not perceive that I was not speaking about bread? It's not easy to get it right, folks. Further proof here in the span of seven verses in today's text, Peter shows us again. When we turn our hearts to God and allow God and his revelation of himself to inform our thinking and our heart, or as Akimpus would put it, when we are obedient out of love for God. And Peter also shows us in today's text what happens when, conversely, when we allow human authority, worldly things, power of the flesh to drive our thinking. Or as Akimpus would put it, <laughs> obedience out of necessity. Peter responds to Jesus' question today with equal part certainty, conviction, 
and a little bit of recklessness as he professes Jesus' identity before the group. He breaks the long pause. Everyone looking to see who's going to be the person to speak up. And, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's mind in this moment is set on the promises of a faithful God. The promises of a Messiah who will overthrow the powers of darkness, the powers of this world, and usher in a new kingdom in which he reigns and is the king above all kings. Peter in this moment is obedient out of love for God. And as a response, Jesus blesses him, confers authority on him. Jesus says to him, For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Good things flow when we set our mind on divine things. And then, sharp contrast, then Jesus begins to show them how he must suffer. How the Messiah will overthrow the powers of this world, but will suffer in doing so, will die and be raised again. And at that point, Peter, with his equal parts, certainty, conviction, and recklessness, speaks up again. He'd heard enough. The motivation in Peter's heart when he says, forbid it, God, <laughs> that's not going to happen to you. The motivation in Peter's heart was the things of man, the things of this world, not the promises of a faithful God. And Jesus rebukes him, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So we ask ourselves, are we obedient out of love for God or out of necessity? When we set our mind on human things, we focus on our worldly needs. We focus on the things of this world, the pleasures of this world, and we potentially miss the revelation of God and God's character and His mercy and love. We focus more on getting it right by our own human definition. And if this last year has taught us anything, it's that oftentimes... Getting it right is next to impossible. There are many problems in our world, and we try to respond in the right way, and oftentimes there is no absolutely right response. We need not be obedient out of necessity. We must, however, be obedient out of love for God and one another. Because when we set our, our mind on divine things, the fullness of God's character becomes revealed to us. We get released from the need to get it right, and we get ushered into this new place of simply being complicit in the work that God is doing in and through our lives. And brothers and sisters, there's freedom in that. In today's text, Peter goes from being the blessed man whom the Father in heaven has revealed deep truths to, from that guy, to, as Jesus puts it, Satan, a stumbling block. So let's go back to the question we started with this morning. Do I live like someone who believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Is my mind set on divine things or human things? Do I live a life of obedience out of love for God 
or out of some other necessity. Peter declared it with words in today's text. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But like Peter, we are called to declare that truth with our lives each and every day, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God.